Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so you can be present for your people. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am your rich, leather-bound guide. And uh, I'm a little throaty today, aren't I? I uh, I'm fighting something off. And you know, you can't just be under the weather these days. So I, uh, I snuck back into the space that I record these things after hours, like a mucusy ninja. So uh, if you're wondering why there's a little more bass in your face today, that is why. Uh, you know, the proprietor of my favorite local used bookstore, Sellers and Newell, if you're in Toronto, recently twisted my rubber arm. He got me to buy a set of encyclopedias. They're called McFadden's Encyclopedias of Physical Culture. And this is a 1920 edition. So a century ago was when these were published. And the first volume I opened just happened to list uh, first three chapters, fasting as a curative measure, and then using hot and cold water for health and vitality. So cold plunges, uh, saunas, stuff like that. And then uh, the third one was using electric currents and mechanical pressure for soft tissue work. So here we are, it's been 100 years, and we're still talking about the same stuff. You know, and I think that my time in the fitness industry has taught me to check my enthusiasm a little bit when something new and exciting comes around. Usually, it winds up being a rediscovery or minor technical upgrade to stuff that's been around forever. You know, and that is not to negate the value of what it is, but I think if we're really going to understand what that value is, we have to look at what shows up in every cycle. And we also have to look at what we have already forgotten about. It was going down this track on the subject of kettlebells that led me to today's guest. Connor Heffernan is an assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education at the University of Texas at Austin. He works at the Stark Center for Physical Culture and Sports there. Connor isn't just an academic. He has competed as a bodybuilder. He loves kettlebells as well as some more esoteric tools. And mostly he's a good time. Connor is also a brand new dad. He is in the thick of it right now. And that's where our conversation begins. Before we start, I want to shout out our sponsor, Othership. Othership is a guided breathwork app that offers you all sorts of choices for your sessions. You can gear up alertness in the morning. You can wind down your mind for better sleep in the evening. And there are about a zillion other more customized options. It's really kind of mind-blowing how nuanced some of these things are. I have personally never clicked with meditation apps, but uh, using Othership works for me. It's the right level of engagement and structure to find my focus and keep it. You can get a free seven-day trial by visiting othership.us. Check it out. Now for my interview with Connor Heffernan. Let's get into it. Not to start the podcast on a vile note, but I didn't know human feces could travel in so many directions uh, in so little time because I'm now the proud owner of a three-week-old baby boy with fantastic lungs and an ability to defecate in his nappy at any possible moment. It's a rich tapestry. Fantastic. More of a Jackson Pollock than a tapestry. Um, <laughs> Touche. I would say. Touche. How does it feel <laughs> to be a new dad? Tiring. Uh, but also wonderful, but tiring. And it's been a wonderful affirmation that no one knows what they're doing. Um, and we're all just trying our best, which I think was the best advice that my own father gave me um, when I asked him for any tips. He's like, yeah, you'll figure it out. Okay, thanks, Dad, I guess. I guess. How's the missus doing? Good. So a little bit of a tough pregnancy, but she's been like the rock um, over the last three weeks. And thankfully, my wife had a lot of experience minding kids. So she was able to tell me like, no, that's not how a diaper goes on or no, that's on backwards or no, why are you trying to get them to chug all of the milk? Because um, when we were feeding, I turned it into almost like... Um, like a beer pong or not beer pong but you know like the funnel so it's almost just like upside down you know him doing a keg stand almost so i would get the bottle and then i would just pierce it with my car keys and then just try and get it into his mouth all all at once and um, that's not the right way to feed them uh apparently so thanks thankfully um my wife had the wherewithal to be a, a little bit uh more circumspect with all this so she she's the expert and i'm swimming in her wake as <laughs> as it happens in all, all good relationships i feel like we are earnest if not uh, altogether competent all, all of the time. And uh, you're back in the motherland. Yeah, so I'm, I'm coming to you live from Ireland where February has now become the depths of winter. So we had hailstones that could blind a man uh, earlier today. So that's been a little bit different from Austin, Texas, which February is like 
idyllic and you know you can go out in t-shirt and shorts and it's warm but not too warm so i'm not sure if my body has quite yet like regulated itself to the the hate which seems to infuse irish weather <laughs> it's uh there's an emotional dimension to it one of the things people do in ireland uh, during the winter is like they'll drink warm whiskey or warm brandy to stay warm and i once heard whiskey described as anger in a glass and i feel like if you're drinking anger in a glass to deal with the weather that probably gives you an indication of um what it's like especially i have a home gym and i'm very lucky but we don't really do garages or basements in ireland so my home gym is my back garden so I train in the back garden under a very cheap plastic gazebo in every sort of weather. So I've done heavy squats in the rain, deadlifts in hailstones, and bench presses when a bird defecated on my chest. Sorry, there's a lot of feces talk um, in this podcast. It just, it feels like the zeitgeist, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's saying more about our society, um, certainly our news cycles. So yeah, I'm acutely aware of the weather and the elements in Ireland at the minute in a way that I probably wasn't um, before we moved to Texas two years ago. Nothing like a little bit of contrast. Uh, and uh, and early parenthood will do that to sleep as well. Do you remember those days of, of having a full night's sleep? I, I, I think so. Um, I have to actually say the outdoor gym has worked really well because I don't drink tea or coffee. Um, so, you know, training in Baltic weather is a really good way to wake up. Um, so that's been good. But yeah, the actual... Mm -hmm. concept of sleep i understand that there's a recommended number of hours i believe some people are able to achieve that uh, would you kindly give us some background on uh, on what you do so i am a lecturer in the sociology of sport but at ulster university in northern ireland more specifically i am one of those weird and wonderful individuals who studies the history and the evolution of strength fitness, powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting, pretty much anything to do with a barbell, a dumbbell, resistance bands, a skip rope, yoga. Um, but really drilling down, I am very interested in how fitness and the fitness industry has evolved from the late 1800s to the present day in England, the United States and Ireland, because, well, obviously I'm Irish, so I'd have to tie in the home connection. So why do we exercise and how did we get to the points where we are today? I feel like studying the history of physical culture is, is like a middle-aged guy hobby, like woodwork or genealogy. So how did you get into it um, at the tender young age that you did? Uh, an old soul on young shoulders. Um, so I, I, I got into studying the history of fitness in a sort of roundabout way. Um, when I first started to go to the gym properly by myself, what I mean by that is, I think if you start training as a teenager, you go to a gym with like, 20 other boys your age um, we seem to at least bench press in gaggles or schools i'm not really sure what the biological term is for a gaggle of young teenagers a gang um, but when i first started to go to a gym by myself it was hercules gym in dublin which was established in 1935 and that place is dripping with history and at one point in its history asbestos but they got rid of the asbestos and they kept the history <laughs> and i would train with older lifters and they would be telling me stories about you know um, Jackie Hayden, who was, uh, not Jackie Hayden, pardon me, um, I can't remember his first name, there was a Hayden who was a weightlifter who went to the Olympics and represented Ireland, or they would tell me about Vince Granda or Bob Hoffman or Rio H. Blair or Perry Rader. They'd be telling me all these names and about the magazines that they would have read growing up, about the fitness writers that they would have ascribed to, about the great Olympic weightlifters, because it's predominantly uh, Olympic weightlifting and then powerlifting were the twin uh, joys of Hercules at that time. So as a late teens, early 20s lifter, like you couldn't not become interested in the history of fitness because everyone you were training with was telling you about this is what they did 60 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. This is how Rocky, who was one of the Olympic weightlifters who used to train with, no relation to Sylvester Sloan, he would tell me about, you know, Vasily Alexiev and all of these wonderful Olympic weightlifters who he would have looked up to. So it just sort of spiraled from there because at the same time, I was doing a history degree in Trinity College Dublin and I wasn't a very good student um, because it didn't, it didn't really interest me. The lecturers were wonderful, but I wasn't very good because I didn't really care until one lecturer said, well, what do you like doing? Going back to that point of despair, what do you want to do, Connor? It's like, well, I like to go to the gym. They're like, just do that. Just 
Yeah. So just do an essay on the gym, just sort of go away and do that and come back and be a good student. And I did that in my third year of a four-year degree. And it just sort of spiraled to the point now where about seven or eight years later, you know, I've written a book on it. I have my own website. I get to speak on cool podcasts like this. So yeah, I'm not really too sure. I do wonder what would have happened if I'd taken up like badminton or like tennis or golf. My dad is an avid golfer. So maybe I would be on a history of golf podcast um, at some point. It could have gone in many different directions, but muscles and strength seem to be uh, bizarrely where my life is turned. And just by way of segue, what is the name of your book? Oh, um, The History of Physical Culture in Ireland. I will say that this is an academic book. It is not a book um, that is legible to most of the general public, which unfortunately a few of my friends realized when it was published. They're like, why are you talking about gender theory and race theory for 20 pages? And I was like, yeah, it's not. They thought it would be like the history of gyms in Ireland, which it is. But it's all that like academic speak that um, Texan lawmakers would probably have an aneurysm about, but we don't need to go into that. Um, so it's an academic book. But well, ho- hopefully at some point, yeah, I'll be writing like a public history book that's actually readable uh, for people. I hope you do, because you're fun. I, do, I, I like to think I'm fun as well. Well, thank you. Well, like I have my website, Physical Culture Study, and I write um, one or two articles a month with like barben.com. So like I... I can I can write good. It's just in academia you have to write different. Nothing worse. Differently. It is. Uh, yeah. It is dense. It is a different. Uh, it is a different thing. But we'll. Um, okay. So so one of the reasons um, I wanted to bring you on uh, mm-hmm. was to talk about the history of kettlebells in particular. Um, and I wrote this down, and I want this is sort of I feel like the life cycle for most people with uh, with mm-hmm. kettlebells. I want you to tell me if this this sounds right. Hang on. Okay. Uh, one, hey, this is a funny way to do bicep curls. Uh, and then the next stage is you start swinging it and maybe doing a few other exercises. The next stage is to go, I am awesome at this. The next stage is to go, my back hurts. Uh, I should maybe take a course. Uh, then you do a certification. And then you say to yourself, I am all that is kettlebell. And every exercise should be done this way. And then at some point you kind of soften and go, well, maybe some other exercises would be better done in this way or with this equipment. Um, and then if, if you're a coach, maybe there's some better ways to teach this. Um, and, you know, eventually start kind of rebuilding what you do. And then the final stage of this life cycle is to be on a podcast talking about kettlebells. Pretty much nailed it. I would say just to put in somewhere is probably... My hips and knees hurt when I squat. I should probably hold this at chest height and sit down and sit back up with it. Um, that, that's also part of it. Um, there's also what is that weird thing? I'm never doing it, which seems to be there seems to be a prejudice against it um, from some circles, which I don't think is probably there as much anymore. But certainly when I first started training, kettlebells was like the weird esoteric thing that you you would only do bicep curls with, as you say. Yeah, a- anecdotally. Um most of the folks that I've met who have come over from Ireland seem to have done kettlebell training like to a high percentage. Um, so it feels like it's infiltrated general physical culture there. And, and again, that's just one guy's kind of limited experience. I mean, that would be wonderful if so. Um, it probably is more a reflection of the gyms that I used to train at where just basically a barbell and sometimes a dumbbell could be a luxury. Um, but so, I mean, that that's maybe uh, a little bit unfair, but yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think a lot of sports teams in Ireland would, like from the early 2000s, would have incorporated kettlebell training because functional training, which is sort of one of the um, Trojan horses for how kettlebells became acceptable again, mm-hmm. functional training became very big in Ireland with sports teams because a lot of them didn't want to do like dumbbell and barbell training. So kettlebells was like an, an acceptable form of resistance training that they could do so maybe maybe that's part of it or maybe i'm just old and not with the times anymore which is you know also a possibility i had mike boyle on the podcast uh a a week a week two weeks ago and we to talk about functional training how would you describe functional training um so functional training historically speaking um is a term that arose really in the 1970s, 1980s to describe 
exercises that were designed to have a very real crossover into daily life or into sport. So it devolved into functional training for competitive sports. So this might be something like pushing a prowler if you're doing something like you know American football or rugby or you know doing a push press for something like rugby or doing very specific shoulder exercises if you're a pitcher in baseball you know things that were assumed to have an immediate crossover into your sport the things that mimicked the actual movements of your sport then there was the functional training in daily life um camps which emerged in the 1990s and early 2000s which was we're not necessarily concerned with getting more muscular we're not necessarily concerned with lifting huge amounts of weight but we do want to make your body like bulletproof so we'll focus on balancing we'll focus on like rotator cuff exercise we'll fo- exercise we'll focus on those smaller muscle groups to make sure that the body is more balanced and there was a lot of scoring attached to that because you would get odd scenarios in which someone might do a barbell back squat on a bosu ball type of thing um, but that form of functional training was very beneficial in kind of gra- grabbing at the general public and bringing them in and making it acceptable and then there was the functional training of the sort of dan john school of thought um which is you know the human body you need a hinge you need to push you need to press sort of thing and you need to be able to lift and carry heavy objects which was similar to the competitive sport arena of functional training but I think it was in its own brand in terms of the exercises that they used. So you'll you'll notice that I, I worked really hard not to be um, derogatory towards functional training there because a lot of the debates around functional training, especially in the late 2000s, early 2010s, mm-hmm. just focused on that bulletproofing the body, people squatting on a BOSU ball with a barbell on their back or people doing balance work with like very light dumbbells, which the latter probably had its place. But I think a lot of people when they think functional training, if you're a meat and potato sort of lifter, and what I mean by that is barbells, kettlebells, dumbbells, functional training sort of became the whipping boy for a few years. But I think it is a much broader phenomenon, one that encompasses competitive sport, one that encompasses rehabilitation from sport, one that encompasses sort of all-round badassedness a la Dan John and lifting heavy things and carrying heavy things. Um, so has, is that, have I hopefully supported what uh, Mike has said or have I completely gone against him? Well, Mike, Mike's Mike. Mike is, uh, Mike Boyle is inimitable. He's uh, he's an OG coach. And, and also, if, if you don't know, so is Dan John, who I think is, has been a really clarifying voice in in strength and conditioning. Functional training as a movement, I mean, if we think back, if we kind of rewind um, 50 or maybe 100 years, I mean, everything sort of, there was a big emphasis on balance and kind of full-bodied athleticism, not necessarily on how much load we're we're putting on the bar. So um, what had to exist prior to functional training for that to even be a response or a thing? Yeah, and I think that's a good... It's a very good question. It's sort of a nasty question, but in a really good way. And when I say it's a nasty question, I mean, so we have, you know, functional training or functional fitness is sort of the brand name given to a very specific form of training from sort of the 1980s onwards. But you are entirely correct to say that the core tenets of functional training have existed in the fitness industry for a much longer uh, period. Now, we could go back to ancient Greece, you know, and ancient Athens, where they talk about the old gymnasia, which are also universities effectively universities, where it was a sound mind and a sound body. So it's trying to balance out the entirety of the body as a conduit to self-development or self-fulfillment. This ethos re-emerged in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, really when it comes to heavy resistance training, because previously, you know, in ancient Athens, it was predominantly calisthenics. In the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, predominantly calisthenics. When people first started to use dumbbells and barbells, as sort of functional training and kettlebells as well, is that late 1800s, early 1900s, when people are first starting to really delve into resistance training with heavy weighted objects. And you're correct in in asking and sort of suggesting very neatly and nicely that people were interested in balance, people were interested in overall development, they were interested in overall health, vim, vigor, vitality, sort of the buzzwords they would have used for energy at that time. And what was needed for that to happen was a chaotic fitness market. And what I mean by that is in the late 1800s, early 1900s, no one knew what they wanted to do. Everyone had a different system. 
and everyone had access to different implements. So in this period, so 1890s, early 1900s, you didn't have an Alico, a Rogue Fitness, a York Barbell, you know, a standard manufacturer creating the same equipment that everyone could buy and use. You had individuals who had access to very specific materials. So some individuals just had access to kettlebells. Some had access to dumbbells and barbells. Some created their own weights. And there are stories of someone like Arthur Saxon, a great German weightlifter of the early 1900s, doing a bent press with a barbell with plates on it, but then also kettlebells on it, and then some dumbbells tied onto it as well because he needed to up the weight on the barbell. So within that chaos, there was a much more, I suppose, receptive audience to different ideas. So you had people like a strong man like Louis Sear, who is just interested in getting as strong as possible and as bulky as possible. You had someone like a Eugene Sandow, seen as the first modern bodybuilder, who would focus on overall bodily development and he would show off and do, you know, backflips holding heavy dumbbells in each hand. You'd have then people like your Arthur Saxon, heavy weightlifters. You'd have people like a Maxic who would do body control, so sort of isometric tensing of the body and of the muscles, which he said would improve digestion and mental clarity and muscle strength and your overall sort of well-being. So you have all of these different ideas existing in the same marketplace and they're all using different implements. And because of that, they're all trying to latch on to different ideas and different hooks for enticing people to do a certain style of training. So I think for functional training to exist, you need some form of equipment. You need a lot of voices and you need a very receptive audience, which we now also have again in 2022, I would say. We have a very chaotic fitness market where there's something for everyone and we are all using different implements, uh, especially during the COVID lockdowns. I think we all got very creative in the weights that we lifted. Um, so we, we're starting to see maybe a parallel in the modern fitness age as well. And and I'll just say, because this is a more sort of Eurocentric view, like all, these traditions existed in... Um, in, in Chinese and Japanese and Korean martial arts, they existed in in yoga and all, all you know uh, all kinds of other physical practices. So um, I don't know. I'm just oh, wedging yeah, I mean, that no. in. Well, no, I mean, and it's a really it's a f- fantastic point. And like we're not unique, and arguably we're quite boring. So <laughs> I have a massive fascination. And you know, if it wasn't freezing, I would show you. I have two very large Indian clubs that I had made by a man. Uh, individual manufacturer in India um, who sent them across. They're about 28 pounds each and they're maybe five feet in length. I'm fascinated with Indian physical culture, um, Hindu and Muslim in uh, physical culture from India and Pakistan. And this is, you know, predominantly from the wrestling akaras, which would have been the gyms for the the Hindu or Muslim wrestlers, where they would use Indian clubs, these very heavy weighted clubs. They would use dals and gals and nals, pardon me, which would be like stone objects that sometimes you would hoist up onto the shoulders or you would hold as sort of dumbbells and do different exercises with. And then you do calisthenics like Hindu squats and uh, BTACs, which are like a Hindu push-up. And like that system of training in India and Pakistan has existed for millennia. If you go into the like Iranian systems or state back, you know, hundreds of years into Persia, where they're using meals and they're using these heavy shields and different calisthenics. Similarly, if you're looking at the martial arts systems in China, in Japan, or if you're looking at the stone lifting cultures in China and Japan, or the stone lifting cultures in Scotland, like arguably the European American gym, which is so like hygienic and standardized and like you know ultra modern. It's so boring because in other cultures and other parts of the world, they're lifting heavy objects, they're lifting heavy stones, they're lifting heavy swords. They're doing all of these amazing things to build different types of fitness and they're understanding fitness differently, which I think is the interesting thing. So going back to India, uh, Joseph Alter, who's an anthropologist, spent a long time in a Hindu akara or Hindu gymnasium. And he was looking at how they understood fitness and it's more about internal energy and vibrancy and then strength versus, you know, the equivalent of a gym in America in the 1990s was like, how ripped are you and what's your bench press? So, yeah, I think there's a disparity and diversity in the fitness community, which is so much richer than what we would find if we just looked at a European or or an American or a North American gym. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and you mentioned the word standardization before, and I think that's really salient here because, you know, when you're figuring this out, when you're kind of looking around in the forest for what can I lift what can I move around? How can I challenge myself? This stuff by default 
is going to be more intuitive. You're going to see what like feels right for your body. A big part, um, you know, by the way, and this is one of the things I talk about with with Mike Boyle is just um, going more to single leg and single arm to unilateral exercises because we are not constrained by the implement, right? But again, this stuff just happened organically right up until we really kind of um, reach peak manufacturing. And I think it's such a a difficult topic um, for some people to really grasp their head around it is that the body moves, and again, you know, Mike and Dan John and others, like the body moves in so many different planes. And I think um, the kettlebell community, actually to tie that back to a previous question, has always been much more receptive and open to the idea of the body moving in different planes because they tend to incorporate exercises that are quite similar to the exercises people would have used in the late 1890s, early 1900s. And what I mean by that is something like a Turkish get-up with a kettlebell is similar to, say, the bent press that Arthur Saxon used to do in the early 1900s, where you're going to have your heavy barbell, and I don't even know how to describe it. You're pushing it overhead while also like twisting and lowering the upper body. So eventually the body is sort of bent over with the barbell overhead with one hand. You have people in the early 1900s doing one-arm clean and jerk with a barbell or a one-arm snatch. And you don't really get that nowadays because it's become so narrowed and focused into we squat down, we squat back up, we push from the chest, we lower the arms, we push overhead, we lower the arms versus the versatility and the playfulness of, say, a kettlebell, for example, which is much closer to nature to the types of exercises you would get in non-Western fitness cultures, which are more open and receptive to moving the body in numerous different ways. Like to go back to Indian club swinging or meal swinging, M-E-E-L, which they would do in Iran, like they're moving the body, they're moving the arms, they're moving the shoulders, they're moving the legs. Swinging clubs is a whole body exercise, but the body is moving like rhythmically and in a sort of meditation. And to end this anecdote, like it is funny how poorly, um, I suppose, poorly designed Western practices can be. So I've been training for, I don't know, 30, 15 years, predominantly in a gym with a barbell, dumbbell, and more recently a kettlebell, thankfully. And when I first started using these heavy Indian clubs, I had a friend who used to actually train in an Indian Akara. And he looked at me using these clubs and they were quite light and he couldn't stop laughing. He was like, that is the most awkward, you know, janky movement I've ever seen someone do. It's like, it's like watching a kid trying to ride a tricycle for the first time, watching Connor swing these clubs. And he's like, let me show you how it's done. And when he grabbed it, there was such a fluidity and movement and rhythm in his body and with these clubs. And I just physically couldn't understand how to move my body in these same planes, even though the weight was so light. So yeah, I think you can become limited to your two-legged exercises, your two-armed exercises, moving in a very rigid plane where you're not exploring like the playfulness of the body and things like one-legged squats or you know one-legged presses or one-legged pulls like doing a one one arm pull or one armed pull up or something like that you, know, you can play around with the body and see where the strengths are see where the weaknesses are and actually just have fun in a different way yeah i think we we sometimes forget um to ask first how this could be enjoyable and and i think back you know to you know, a few generations ago, um, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, Saxon doing backflips with, uh, with dumbbells. And that, that was a thing. Um, I know people would do flips holding heavy weights. I've seen chairs stacked, um, you, you know, people like holding, uh, you know, like a planche or a ha- handstand on, on a massive unstable object, you know, all kinds of really incredible things where we assume um, athleticism is kind of developed in this linear way, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, I'll mention just real quick, um, you know, the modern sort of Western gym is everything, everything's in front of you. Uh, what, uh, uh, Nick, Nick Tumolino is a, is a, uh, a well-known trainer and he, uh, describes this as a sort of a Robocop exercises. Everything's like right in front or just, just up in that same plane. So the idea of, yeah, going behind your head, uh, moving 360 degrees, getting timing, um, I like, I like, I am attracted very much to rotational implements like kettlebells, um, Indian clubs and meals, maces, because you have to sort of cooperate with the equipment. You can't just white knuckle it and force it into a position. You have to listen to how it's falling, how gravity is guiding it and sort of make these, these subtle adjustments, um, as you go, it's, you have to be very present to do it. 
Yeah, and I think that's something that can, depending on the lifter, can be lost in the traditional, like I'm going to steal that from now on the Robocop exercises, um, because you can white knuckle it, and you can be very much out of your body while doing a heavy deadlift or a heavy squat, and it can become quite mechanical. And I think the there is a drive for heavy and heavier weights in sort of Western gym cultures, which is fantastic and it's part of competitive sport, but it can also alienate people from their bodies because instead of discovering all of the different planes that your body moves in, you discover the most efficient way to do your squat or the most efficient way to do your deadlift or your bench press. Like my deadlift is very mechanical because I found, you know, the exact right angle that I need to to sit into to be able to pull the maximum load versus when I started swinging Indian clubs when my friend was helping me learn the form, it was working on my hips rather than my shoulders helped me to figure out that movement. And it was, you know, figuring out a different way of moving the body and is much more present. It's no surprise that Joseph Alter, who studied club swinging, said that, you know, for the practitioners of it who've done it for 10, 15, 20 years, this is basically meditation. Like this mm-hmm. is, you know, your mindfulness combined with your exercise. And I think even if you're swinging a heavy mace, if you're swinging clubs, if you're doing a heavy or a kettlebell complex, you can get into a certain zone that I think you don't get if you're just like white knuckling, you know, your bench press or your squat or whatever. And that's not to say that one is better than the other, but it's different ways of moving and using the body. And sometimes we can get stuck into there's three big lifts, there's seven or eight machines, and that's it. Do you know, which is, you know, all well and good, but the body's meant to move in a variety of ways. Yeah, I think you know, I agree. Yeah. It's not, it's not that this is better than that. It's just, have you tried this other stuff? Have you checked it out? Cause you might really enjoy it and benefit from it. Yeah. And to that point, I think sometimes in the fitness community, we fall into the trap of assuming that what exists in a gym is there because that's the best possible way of training. When the reality is how we train in the West and how we train in Europe and how we train in North America is more the result of fitness entrepreneurship and the fitness industry rather than the efficacy or effectiveness of certain exercises. So something like to go back to kettlebells, there's been a lot written about the fact that, you know, Alan Calvert, who is an American barbell manufacturer, he founded Milo Barbell in the early 1900s. He was the first North American mass producer of kettlebells. And kettlebells are used in North America up until about the 1950s and 60s, when they then sort of drop off the face of the the earth, Mm -hmm. predominantly because the fitness industry has gone in a new direction. Bodybuilding and powerlifting are becoming a lot more popular. And Victoria Felker has written a public article on Barbend, which suggests that maybe anti-Russian sentiment um, contributed to the fall away of the kettlebell in America in the 1960s. And then obviously the kettlebell comes back really in the 1990s, early 2000s, with the likes of Pavel and others who are promoting it to the Americans now as a Russian secret. And it's now acceptable to see it as a Russian secret, um, you know, rather than in the, the height of the Cold War era. And that's just a small example of how, you know, the kettlebell disappeared for 40 years, give or take, not because it wasn't useful, but because manufacturers stopped producing it because they were focusing on cheaper and easy to, easier to um, market products. Because if I'm selling... A kettlebell, like I've literally just bought a whole new rack of kettlebells. But you know, I'm, I have a very small, it's a very small set. You know, like I have my light kettlebells, my heavy kettlebells, but there's no adjustability in that really. Whereas if I'm selling you a barbell, I can sell you my 40, your 45 pound plates, your 35 pound plates, your 25 pound plates, your five pound plates, your two and a half pound plates. And I can keep selling you plates. I can then sell you micro plates. I can sell you more if I'm selling you dumbbells and barbells than if I'm selling you a kettlebell because the kettlebell is not as profitable for me relative to these other objects. So that's one thing to consider in why certain gyms are created in certain ways. And then we have machines being sold in the 1970s to gyms, people like Arthur Jones and the Nautilus company, where it's very attractive for gyms to buy machines because if I have a load of machines on my gym floor, I don't actually need to train people how to use them. Or if I do need to train them, it's very simple to train them. So something like a leg press, I can train someone how to use that, maybe not effectively, but within about five minutes. Similarly, with like a chest press machine or a lap pull down machine or a shoulder press machine, 
So machines become really popular in gyms in the 1970s and 80s because more members of the general public will come in and use a machine because they're not as self-conscious about going to where all the bodybuilders are and training. They can train just on machines. Machines are easier to use. Something like a kettlebell, which like if we're being honest, you need to know your onions to use an Irish and English um, expression because, you know, something like even like a kettlebell swing, we've all seen horror stories and horror swings with that. Like you need to actually spend time to learn your craft and do your due diligence with something like a kettlebell or a dumbbell or a barbell. And if machines are more profitable for gyms, because they're saying, listen, if we just focus on machines, we'll get more people in through the door. Well, then there's going to be more machines and kettlebells in the gym. So it's just interesting to think about using the kettlebell as an example. You know, how our gyms are actually made up and the standardization of our gyms isn't necessarily because dumbbells and barbells are the, you know, the father, the son and the Holy Ghost to use an Irish expression of the fitness industry. Like they're great, but we are also limited and influenced by what manufacturers have done, what the cultural climate is, what gyms want, like what's the most profitable thing for a gym to have, because gyms are not charities, they are businesses. So all of these different things can also impact how we train, but also how we think about training. Because if the kettlebell isn't in the gym that we're going to, we probably don't have a high opinion of it. You know, or if the Indian clubs aren't in the gym that we go to, we probably don't have a high opinion of them because they're not there in our, in our physical space. I think that is such an astute and insightful point. And it's an important one because we don't always question how this stuff came to be. We sort of assume that if it's here, it's for the exact best reason um, that things have been part of an evolution and we are at the highest point of all time, that it's all been straight up. And we don't always question, you know, and maybe I'm just getting long in the tooth, but I don't think we can really look at anything without factoring in the market, I guess, factoring in capitalism, because there's a reason these exist. There's a reason these things have been promoted. And, and you're 100% right when you say, you know, we don't always question. So I think, you know, maybe to me, some of these more traditional implements or take Indian clubs, for example, maybe what they really are, are sort of a code to say, hey, we've, we've dug into this a little bit more. You know, we've, we've looked back through history to see if what we've got right now may not be the ultimate answer to everything. Yeah. And I mean, these are things that I think we d- we're not open enough with in the fitness industry is the because I think we, we tend to see gyms and coaches in quite a banal, it sounds too insulting, but I just mean in quite a neutral light. So we're just like, oh, the gym. Yeah, okay, that's where all the, all the heavy stuff is. Or like the coaches. Okay, yeah, no, they know what they're doing. And like they, they know what's best rather than the coaches are limited or enhanced by the training that's available to them, but also the climate in which they work or operate. Is it one which is pressuring them to make sales very quickly and very early on? Or is it one that is focusing on sort of a whole body development of them and their clients? Is the gym in it for the high volume, high sales approach where we'll sell thousands of memberships and hope that 200 people show up? Or is the gym more of a community led approach? Or is the gym a cooperative gym? You know, all of these different things influence the philosophy of the gym and the communities within them. And going anecdotally, I have found that gyms which are more likely to incorporate functional training, be it kettlebells, be it some form of calisthenics, be it some form of club swinging or mace training, etc., tend to have a different philosophical community or a different philosophical approach than your straight, you know, dumbbells and barbells, multi-gym chain or your individual like spit and sawdust gyms. There's a different philosophy in the gym space. And interestingly, the equipment that's used and promoted can also be like a very neat um, signal as to what the philosophy will be. Like having traveled around America and traveling in Ireland and England, I've gone to so many different gyms, sometimes even just for a one day pass. And oftentimes, you know, within about 20 seconds of seeing the gym floor, I'm like, oh, okay, it's this type of gym. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, not say it's good or bad, but it's, it's different. And I don't think we, we think about that enough. I'll say this. Over the last several years, I've seen more of a trend toward, I guess, micro gyms, small independent gyms that are a lot more niche where we say, hey, we're 
doing things in a particular way. We have a particular ethos. I guess I'm, I'm using we because I include our gym in that group. Um, and that's been, it's been interesting to see. So I think there are a lot more opportunities to find exactly what you're looking for, certainly in larger urban centers. Um, and really CrossFit has done a huge amount in this regard um, with the box gyms and then the spin-offs that that's all created is that there's more and more variety um, in the gym space. So, you know, I mentioned Hercules Gym, which is founded in 1935 in Dublin. That's a cooperative gym. So it's not run for a commercial basis. It's run solely for the members. You have new iterations of that. There's a Bristol co-op gym in England, which is a member-based gym, which is emerging. You do have those, you know, dedicated gym spaces and, you know, a CrossFit box, or we're going to have these sort of alternative fitness now, I say boxes, but they're not affiliated with CrossFit. So you do see that there are more like splinter cells, um, to be very grandiose about it, emerging in the fitness space. And I think that's for the benefit of everyone because people want to train differently. And some people get a great buzz off of just doing heavy, you know, big three power lifts. Other people need to actually move the body up, down, left, right, diagonally, you know, backwards, forwards, side to side, in every which way. Um, and I think there's more, well, depending on where you live, there is more of an openness to that. You know, I, it's easy to give CrossFitters a hard time, but I'll say what was refreshing about CrossFit was I feel like it was kind of a response to big box gyms saying, okay, it's got to be well appointed and we need a lot of machines and equipment in general. There's something liberating about being able to just slap some rubber flooring down on concrete, uh, chalk up and get to work, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's starting to shift slightly now, but we are still stuck in a in a training paradigm that is centered on bodybuilding. So what I mean by that, um, Jan Todd, Terry Todd, and Jason Shirley wrote a brilliant book, which is actually accessible, unlike my books, um, called The History of Strength Coaching in America. So it's looking at how strength and conditioning began to be used by professional teams in America. And in the book, Jan Todd makes the point that, you know, training paradigms exist in the fitness industry. So there is a predominant way of training that tends to dominate the fitness industry. So up until the 1940s or 50s even, Olympic weightlifting was the dominant training paradigm. Olympic weightlifting was the primary way in which people built their strength and built their bodies. Even the bodybuilders were doing Olympic weightlifting in the, up to the 1940s and 50s. Even powerlifters were doing Olympic weightlifting up to the 40s and 50s. It was a foundation on which everything else was built. Bodybuilding rose in popularity in the 60s and 70s through things like pumping iron. It became the mass cultural ideal of what a gym is. Like, even if someone doesn't go to a gym, they'll probably know what a bicep curl looks like, like or what the bench press is, or they might you know, gravitate towards those exercises now, even today. But for really since the 60s and 70s, bodybuilding became, for dedicated gym goers, one of the primary paradigms. It was the foundation on which their fitness interest was built. That has sort of eroded away in the last 15 years. Powerlifting has become a lot more popular. But then we also have now these full body movement, functional training boxes coming out you know, from the 1990s as well. But I think a lot of people are still stuck in the idea that the bodybuilding paradigm, the low body fat, hypermuscular, hyper pardon me, ideal is the best way for your body to look. And having done two natural bodybuilding shows, I can tell you, you will feel like crap if you Dead, you know, diet down to 5% body fat and destroy your hormones. But that is what many people, I think, assume the gym should be or will look like. And it, that is changing in the like resistance training community because there are more options to explore those different philosophies and paradigms. But I think there, we are still stuck in the sort of aftermath of the bodybuilding crazes of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Pumping iron come out. I feel in my head that's 1973? So a little bit, sort of 77 is when it would have been, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, there's something else I think a lot about in in this sort of historical context. And I, I think people just kind of asked like, okay, if I've done a little bit of this and it's been great, I feel amazing. How do I do the most amount? And certainly anabolic steroids come into this conversation, but I think that's just where... Traditionally in big box gyms, or, or when we take this mentality of, oh, it's all about body composition, it's going to inevitably lead into bodybuilding or 
I don't know. I saw it a lot less frequently for guys. It felt like for a while, back in maybe the late aughts, um, I'd meet all mm. these women that had joined a gym to lose weight or start working with a personal trainer and for some reason got pushed into doing shows. They do figure competition shows. They put on the clear heels and get up on stage. It was <laughs> a wild time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that, that certainly chimes with um, a lot of the experiences that say myself and then um, friends of mine would have as well. Especially, it seemed for some reason that um, women were more susceptible to being pushed into bodybuilding competitions very early on um, than men. But I'm not really sure why that was the case. But yeah, that, that was, as I said, the entry point for a lot of people. Um, and then a lot of people are being pushed into maybe not the competitions themselves, but certainly the disordered eating, which accompanies bodybuilding or potentially can accompany bodybuilding. And I think things like functional training, unless you're an athlete, athletes sometimes can get lucky and can be introduced to a range of different modalities very early on, depending on the coach that they have. Unless you are one of those lucky athletes who is doing kettlebell swings and Turkish get-ups while also doing a squat or whatever the case may be. So they get a little bit of everything. The general public has often been introduced to bodybuilding training. And then when they become disillusioned, maybe powerlifting, maybe CrossFit, maybe Olympic weightlifting, maybe like, you know, using the body through multiple planes. But unfortunately, it seems for the general public, a lot of them have to sort of fall away from a bodybuilding style approach to diet and exercise before they come to something that really does suit them because obviously like i've done two natural bodybuilding shows i enjoy that style of training but through my research i've been lucky enough to be more open to kettlebells to indian clubs to meals to calisthenics to one-legged movements etc because that's what people have been doing for a century and i look at it and i say okay so the bodybuilding paradigm really starts in the 1970s moving your body through multiple ways you know a couple, couple of millennia behind that so i mean there has to be something to this uh, at the very least, it might be beneficial. It's not going to hurt me. One hopes. One hopes. All right. Last question for you. Um, all right. You're, you're a historian, and maybe it's a stretch to ask you to make any predictions. But, you know, a, a lot of this stuff is cyclic. We see the same trends come and go again and again. So any uh, predictions you want to make for the future? Oh, I mean, historians are notoriously bad at predicting the future um, because we deal with the past. So I can give you like the Forbes article that one would write, which is probably home fitness is going to become popular again for a little while. I think we are probably going to be moving more towards functional training again, but through a Olympic weightlifting CrossFit lens, I think more and more people are going to that. And again, through group exercise classes, where it is going to be, I suppose, overall balance and training the body. As you say, we go through cycles, so we will then undoubtedly have a pushback against that when powerlifting and bodybuilding will become popular again. I think what lends me to believe that the bodybuilding paradigm, it will always be popular, but I think it is falling in popularity because the physiques of elite bodybuilders are becoming very problematic for the general public. When people saw pumping iron in 77, they said, you know, look at Arnie's body. And then if they dug a little bit in the weeds, they might say, look at Zane's body, look at Nubre's body. You know, look at these people who were freakish, don't get me wrong, but seemed to be achievable for individuals. Whereas one of the most heartbreaking things for me in the last 24 months is how many professional bodybuilders have died from complications due to, you know, a variety of different things. We, we can't know exactly why, but in their 30s and 40s, and it's getting harder and harder to sell that sport to the general public, which is why the IFBB have physique competitions, have classic competitions, have board short competitions, because they're trying to muscle down the sport. And I'm, I'm still skeptical as to how popular that is or how attractive that is for the general public. So I think the next trend is probably going to be A, home fitness in a variety of different forms, but then B, I think more box style gyms, your boutique gyms, which are offering one style of training, which probably is going to hit the body from multiple different ways. And I mean, like boutique gyms can also be sort of like box gyms in a or in, um, like your larger scale gyms, like Orange Theory Fitness, you know, is sort of a boutique gym that's popped up all around the place because it's training you in a number of different ways. But you'll have more, I think, your specialized like little hubs of knowledge is, is my prediction. But as I said, historians are 
notoriously bad at predicting the future. If I was good at it, I'd be a much, much wealthier man. Um, but unfortunately, I'm not. It makes me think of the uh, Biff Tannen sports almanac from Back to the Future. Go back and make some bets. Yeah, see, that was the thing. I, everyone wanted like the Nikes that tied their own laces or the floating hoverboards. I was like, no, I want the thing that'll make me money. I don't want to spend money on gadgets. I want the money that will get me the gadgets. Um, so yes, Biff's outcomes without the personality. In a perfect world. You know, looking back, I'm pretty sure we were supposed to talk more about kettlebells, but you know what? We'll do that another time. It's been a great conversation. We've covered lots of ground. Yeah, I, I should have warned you that Irish people have a dreadfully endearing quality of derailing conversations. So the conversation will flow. And at the end of it, you'll be like, they didn't actually answer anything that I wanted to talk to them about. Um, so yes, by all means, I would love to be part of this again. And I promise to go more in depth and in the weeds uh, on kettlebells and their history. Let's agree to do that. I would really like to uh, bring you on again. Uh, before we say goodbye, anything you want to shout out or promote, let people know about? Mm, um, actually, not me, um, but can I give a shout out to a friend's company, which I'm very enthusiastic about? I sure wish you would. So there, it's called Strongest Ever Trading Cards. And this is an individual, it's a complete labor of love, but he's effectively created um, baseball trading cards for strength. So he's gone through the history of strongmen, Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, you know, the early physical culturists. He's looked at their achievements. He's given them a strength rating like you'd have in your baseball cards. And you can, you know, trade the cards. You can collect them all. There's Legends cards. There's, you know, Vasily Alexiev. There's Eugene Sander, George Hackensmith, uh, Jared Bonk. There's all of these wonderful strongmen um, from the last century with these cool little cards that are shiny and have strength coefficients on them. And um, so strongest ever trading cards would be my shout out because this company was started in early January. Brian McKean, who runs it, is a lovely man and it's such a labor of love. And it's just a cool thing. Like it's such a good stocking filler um, to get someone is, you know, these little trading cards of strongmen. Um, if you're like me, and I presume people listening, some of them will be like me, hopefully. This could very well be. We will find out. Well, uh, thanks a lot. And we'll talk soon. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Wow. Connor did not exaggerate, did he? It was not a straight line. We took a winding path, but we covered a lot of great stuff and we had a good time doing it. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you to the Unlearning Network, to our sponsor, Othership. You can check them out at othership.us. And a big thanks to my guest, Connor Heffernan. We'll see you soon. <laughs>